Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. So Bluebells Forever podcast, I'm sitting here with Doug Woods, not sitting here with, but across on Zoom, which is the miracle of technology these days. And I have to, I don't know if you remember this. I think you messaged me a long time ago and asked if I taught you, it was some funky move. And I thought it was a Ron Lewis thing it was popcorn. And I said, no, that wasn't me. And then I was like, I follow you on Facebook. I went, wait, that was the same guy. And I don't know if you thought I was somebody else or if I actually taught you some funky move way back in the eighties. <laughs> That's what, well, the person that would have taught me that her name was Sherry. And she was, when I saw that, I went, what kind of choreography is that? And it was in the hallway between the dressing rooms at the Lido where you run up the stairs between your, your quick changes. And her name was Sherry Lewis. And she was at the Lido when I was there. And that's how I got my audition to go with Ronnie. Um, Cause I could do that popcorn. Oh my gosh. Because I just remembered that when, when we started to record, I'm going to try to find, cause I was Sherry Pennington. That was my maiden name. Sherry Lewis is my married name, but okay. That's just super fun. Okay. So we're going to go backtrack because we've talked for maybe 45 minutes before we recorded. And I got so excited because you oh. have these things to offer. I just finished Bluebell's biography by, um, oh gosh, I forgot the name now. Uh, she authorized it that it could be told. Sure. Yeah. But I just finished it. So when you start talking about it, I got really emotional. I go, here's somebody that knows the history, that cares about the history, because the way things you were talking about, I got very emotional because this is Miss Bluebell, who our, our careers are because of and her character. But I think it was reading about her in context of history makes our story feel even richer that this exists coming out of what happened in Paris during World War II. So we're going to get to that eventually. So okay. thank you, because I got so excited. I go, you're the person I wanted to talk to that actually can put this in a context, contextual way that makes sense to the cabaret world afterwards. So I would love to hear about your journey as a dancer growing up, where you grew up and what got you into dance. Okay. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, so I, I started dancing young. I was seven years old when I started dancing and, and I loved it. I, uh, my sisters were dancers as well. And um, so I progressed and uh, in and out. And I, I, uh, my mom had me audition for a youth ballet that took us up to New York. And that gave us a lot of um, uh, training and background. And from there, I ended up um, with a great tap and jazz instructor who ended up taking me literally to Las Vegas. And they were holding an audition uh, for the Lido de Paris. And that show changed the trajectory of my life, my career. And um, what a wonderful uh, career I've had for the last 25 years. So before we get there, you were 17 years old? I was 17. So I What went, did your parents think of you going well, with someone else to Vegas to audition? Were you still in high school? Yep. So <laughs> in high school, it was a February. It was very cold here in Cleveland, Ohio. And my dance teacher said, if you don't go to this audition, I'm going to take you there. And that's the kind of uh, mentors that we had back then. Um, these were people that were professionals themselves, but they took you under their wing and your parents trusted them and said, okay. So I went to an audition. I got in the stage door. I was only 17. You had to be 18, but I was allowed to come into the audition. There were about 200 people. Hmm. And, um, I was number 32, I believe. And I got it. <laughs> they kept whittling it down and there was only one spot and I got it. So I was 17 and um, I graduated quickly, uh, early and moved to Las Vegas and began an incredible life as a professional dancer. 
Because I have okay. to, was it 18 was minimum? Because I, we I felt or like in Paris, there was girls at 16, but in Vegas, even back then, you really weren't working professional before 18. No. Correct. And I tell you, that's what happened. So after I disclosed that I wasn't, they, they had called me to say that you got the job. There, there were only, uh, I think, eight guys in the show, eight dancers. Um, I believe there were 18 bluebells and I think 12 nudes at the time. Then there were singers and everything else. But dance wise, those were, there was only one spot and I got it. And when I, he had said that, you know, the rehearsals will begin at midnight. And I had to say, well, I'm 17. And he said, oh, we'll have to get parents to emancipate you and you'll report to the stage manager and they will see to it that you go back to your apartment that will get you set up with. They let me stay at the Stardust, I think, for a week. And um, then, of course, uh, it was like um, very pampered living, you know. But, how, did you, how did your parents take that? Were they excited they were, for you or a little nervous? Or They had never seen a Las Vegas show. Of course, they knew the showgirls and things like that. But they had never seen a floor show. And um, so the Stardust and the Dunes and the Flamingo and all of the, the major shows that were there, the Follies Brugere, of course, these were shows that were on Ed Sullivan and throughout television. And, and these were shows that um, were iconic to Las Vegas. But my parents, they allowed and, and brought me up with musical theater. So I saw a lot of sound of music and a lot of hair and they were very progressive and the Beatles and all of that. So they were hip. But uh, when my dance teacher called and said he got the job, they didn't really understand that that meant I had to move to Las Vegas and I would be working in a topless show. How did that go over? How progressive were they? they? Well, when they flew out, they were very supportive. My dad thought it was the greatest show he had ever seen in his life. Um, my mom asked one of the showgirls if she was cold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a sweet motherly so, thing to be concerned about. <laughs> yep. And then so did you did you see the show before you auditioned or after you got it? Did you even know what you were really what you were in for? Oh, no, no, I didn't. It was just like going to a dance class, you know, I'm going to yeah. another, I've gone to a lot of auditions, you know, in New York, you go to Hello Dolly and blah, 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 and Summer Stock and all of that. So to go to another audition and see, oh, Pas de Berets and Double Pirouettes and you want a tour jeté, you know, and then on Lar and jump high, jump splits and all of that. No problem. So that's why it was like, Oh, this was a nice free class. Oh no, I got the job. <laughs> wow. I think there's something that a lot of us didn't realize. Like it, there was, I just read somewhere that there was just too many of us that wanted jobs. So when you actually get it, you don't realize when you're young of how amazing it was to be selected. Cause they could have said, no, you're 17. We'll pick yeah. somebody else because look at how many other people are here auditioning. Yeah. So I always wonder like, what is that thing that they saw in you? That was like, we will have him emancipated. We will take on a 17-year-old. And, and why they didn't take a 24-year-old that could have been also good. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. The, the thing was that that's what I had had that discussion with the, the, the line captain that had said, pick, pick this one. And then uh, Rich Rizzo was there and I eventually met Bluebell. But um, when he was there, they said the same thing. And I asked, why me? How, why did you pick me? And they said, you were the one. You, you had the Lido style. It was wow. a style that was Bluebell. And she knew. What was your interaction with Bluebell? Did she actually talk to you or she was there yeah. just kind of watching? And Actually, she was there. I believe it was 80 or 81. And um, she came in to see the show. And I think she was working with HHH at the time too. And um, so the, what Bluebell did is she was in the audience and then she would correct, of course, we all got notes and corrections and 
and um, uh, did um, cleanup rehearsals, if you probably remember, at one in the morning and placement rehearsals till three in the morning. And she was always part of the team, but um, um, I don't remember that, that um, that I just remember meeting her and getting every, everybody was approved and uh, the, um, the, the, you know, you really don't realize the legend that you're, you're mm-hmm. dealing because you're the one on stage now. And, um, and, and wow. they, they created that for you. Yeah, I think and, a lot of us, like, I had no idea who was, and that's when we get to the history of her life. I think that's why it's amazing to think that at 17, you're standing in front of this person or dancing for this person that has this history that none of us at that time knew. No. Do you yeah. remember what your, what it was like going into the show? Were you just, because you had been exposed to a lot of theater, but some people came in like really green, really naive. And you are like topless oh. dancers. You're in move to Vegas. Like, what and, was your yeah. transition into that? Very green. Yeah. Well, I couldn't get an apartment. I was 17. Um, so <laughs> at the time, I got there and got out of the Stardust Hotel situation. We got an apartment. I, I shared with a couple other guys. There were about six of us. And then I finally was able to get my own apartment. And my my pal, Miranda Coe, who, uh, of course, from the, uh, the Lido, um, was the one that we were both just so green and um, guided right into um, what life was going to be like as a professional dancer. And, um, um, but it, it, it wasn't easy. You know, I went out and I, I had gone out with other people that I auditioned with and they did not get it. They didn't. And that, that was a hard thing. And they went home and I stayed. Wow. So there's no and, real goodbye or prep for this. You're just, there you are. You're now a professional you. dancer at 17 in Las Vegas at the height of how that, that floor show cabaret Parisian all that was it, it's probably at a peak at that time too and you're there you go there you're in it yep wow and so the other folks went home and back to class or wherever they went and I stayed and um, my very first show yes it was um, I, I think we did six weeks of rehearsals and um, I remember going through placement um, because you know, you're dealing with dangerous situations. You've got real torches of fire with feather headdresses that you don't know what's going on and stages that elevate three levels with real waterfalls that are going into the audience. And you better be perfect. There's so many ways to die and so many ways to kill somebody else. And like... You know, this and in that contract, tigers, you know, <laughs> from Siegfried and Roy backstage, you know. So, did you so, come into the beginning of Alilito? So, you were part of the original cast, or were you coming as a replacement? I was coming in as a replacement. There okay. was one, one spot. That's the one spot. Okay, so then you come in, That's get awesome. thrown into That's your spot, and then yep. wow. And, and literally, though, I had the greatest line captains and teachers. His name was Roger Dennehy. And Roger was the one that worked with me because I was so young. I mean, honestly, but I could dance. But to work with that many and incredibly talented people and to, to train to condition to go on stage like that twice nightly, three on Saturday. <laughs> What a beast. Yeah. How'd your body do? Not well. I, I remember getting injured after about five and a half months. I hurt. Yeah. And I, I came home for about six weeks. It was two weeks at Christmas. I asked for time off. And then I got healed up again and went back to work for a year and a half. The show solid. Wow. And then I got injured, you know, you start to get the wears and tears and um, took a break again, but I couldn't resist. I came back. And then yeah. after that last third contract, same thing, Lido um, as the swing, you know, and, and by then, you know, both sides of the stage and you're doing your grocery shopping down the <laughs> stairs. Um, <laughs> um, 
and then it just leads to the next step, which was when I met the girls from Ronnie Lewis. And um, they said, would you? And I said, what, what kind of jazz is that? And they would work with me and wiggle my hips, baby. You're <laughs> and you're going into this. Okay, Did you that, take class at dance at backstage? Because I feel like Joan was teaching. I think I don't know if Ron Lewis. Ron Lewis was teaching maybe no, at that time. So you weren't. They lived for those classes in yeah. Reno and Vegas of those because it was all these entertainers from around the world that were so great. But if until then, I remember the same thing when I saw Ron Lewis choreography. I was like, "What is this? And where has this been my whole life? Like, why have I not been doing this?" Right, right. And then you see what he did and where he came from from Jack Cole, and that's why it was so cool. It was structured. It was lean. It was tough, you know. And the girls were tough. Yeah, but actually, <laughs> there was nothing like that. And so did you go what, do a Ron Lewis show after that? Yeah. So what I what happened was is um I, I had been at the Lido now for almost three years and um kept coming back for more. Of course, I loved it. You know, there was nothing like the Lido. I auditioned for Follies Brigier. I didn't get the job. I auditioned for Fluff Laco. Um, and oh. I did not get the job. I kept trying to get out of the Lido. I was burned out, you know, after that yeah. many. And then I finally went to the Ron Lewis audition. My pals, my showgirl pals uh, said, you're ready. And they said, you know, Ronnie is auditioning for a brand new Broadway show. Broadway. Oh, it's going to open in Atlantic City. Okay. So I went to the audition. And Ronnie, I'll never forget it. He was sitting at the table. And Frederick Apka, the greatest, like Bluebell, hero mm -hmm. world war ii nothing like that generation ever did for us that yeah. will ever be again and what they did and the what what heroes um these these are shoulders we're standing on oh. um frederick apcar was the one that said come here and i'm thinking oh god and there were about 200 people there and he said, if you take this job, Ronnie will make you a good dancer. And I'm looking at him like, a good dancer? I've been working at the Lido for three <laughs> years, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, come here. I want to introduce you to Ron Lewis. It's like, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. I saw you dance. You, you can dance. And I said, okay, but I'm going to make you a good dancer. And he's repeated the same line. He goes, if you do this show, I'll make you a good dancer. And I thought, okay, wow. thank you. I'll take it. And how hard was the audition? What, where, was it his funk and this, did he yeah, throw different that, styles at you? Because he's very diverse in his styles. Yeah, um, very athletic, mm -hmm. obviously. And, um, but Ronnie was um, a beast. I mean, over and over, the rehearsals were 12 hours. Oh um, I, I were just going um, back to the apartment or our condos. We had a house on the on the beach on the shore, and we were just all tied together. Literally, <laughs> we would have to put our legs on the wall and fall asleep. No one cared where they were. It was just like one big, you know, feed us and put our legs up, and because we had to go back, do it again. Uh, the next day and you're like dying you know wow but i'll tell you after that training that was the greatest stuff i've ever done in my whole life literally. i have a question about that does he do the does he do like a short turnaround time like get the show up or does he take a lot of time because he's cleaning and detailed like why is his days it 12 hours so detailed and okay. he would let it go on until it was ready try wow. that we okay. actually the rehearsals even delayed two more weeks. One, because the theater wasn't ready. And two, that's when Ronnie fell through the staircase in rehearsal and broke his leg. Oh, my, wow. You didn't know that? Yeah. No. So was, the stair was it not fully built? or It came apart. The grand staircase in the rehearsal room. I'll never forget it. 
and he was working out because he used to do the most intricate steps that we would have to do as a cast. The guys were just kicking and we were coming down the staircase and he's ranting and he, the staircase opened up and he fell through the middle. It was so awful and so shocking. Yeah. Wow. Several accidents actually happened with his shows because the choreography was so hard. Yeah. But I don't know if people's backs survived that. I watched those videos of that back, back, and the popcorn, and they were throwing it, which looks like so much fun to do maybe once in a while, but yeah, were you guys doing six here. nights a week? Right. But what a show. What a show. That's, that's just, um, I did that show for 10 months, and that's all I lasted, and that's when I was, I, I went, Jean Ann Ryan was in the audience and came backstage and said, would you come work for me? That I need a vacation. If that, if this show means a vacation from what I do, <laughs> and <Well>. it was, <laughs> she came. I auditioned for Gina, and I kept trying to figure out how to audition for her because my contracts were always back to back. And yeah. so she said, "I'll come to Montreal and do an audition. If you think there's good dancers there, I go there are." And then she came to see me in the show that night too. So they get they, you know, it was nice because she wants to see you in the show. But compared to some, like that was a Joan Palethorpe show too. So like the cruise ships were good hard work, but still it was not the backbreaking <laughs> like what you guys were doing. Oh my God. And when I saw the videos recently that the folks have been um, sending, sending out and about, by the way, one of the best Ronnie Lewis dancers lives in, in Seattle. And I was, and he's a good friend. Um, his name is Jeff Bike. And so if you get a chance- Ooh. We'll have to have you reach out to him. Jeff Fike? Okay. Jeff. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. What shows did he do? Did you guys do shows together? Stepping out. Yeah, we did. Okay. We did Ronnie Lewis's show together with Victor Culver. And um, what an incredible dancer. Um, um, and he lives in Seattle. Okay. I'm going to have to yeah. check him out. The only other friend <gasps> from Seattle. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and we did just recently connected about three years ago, and it was again Facebook. Wow, look at you guys! Blah blah blah. Yeah, here we go. Did you work with um, Sean Cronin? Is he using a Dodge? A Dodge, yeah. and then he's friends with Kevin Cashmore, who lives in Seattle. So he's coming to Seattle to see him. Like, there's people here I had no idea. Like, we need to just go in a dance studio and attempt to do any of those moves. <laughs> see if our bodies can hold out <laughs> okay you go first okay i'm a yeah. massage therapist i'm in massage room ready for all the necks and back and hip pain that we would have oh, oh my gosh so i don't i kind of want to i know i want to hear more of your career that maybe we'll put on the other end of this because i want to hear what you did after but can you share like why you went back and got your master's like what brought you back to school because i want to hear about that project and the the support and that's so wonderful that people actually encourage and we're interested because that's part of why we're all telling our stories is we are interested in wondering if anybody else out there is still interested and finding there's a lot of us that are very passionate about this and it's important this is the american theatrical history of the floor shows these were not burlesque this was not vaudeville this was not broadway these were uniquely american they're Parisian inspired and they were called floor shows and thank you for asking when my career ended and I ended it many times <laughs> we mm -hmm. all retire several times until that great offer comes along and you go I can't do that anymore but yeah wow you, you do it until you can't do the nutcracker you know and that's it <laughs> <laughs> but um so I went back to graduate school. I came home. Uh, I visited Ohio all the time. I lived in LA for 25 years, worked in television, did a lot of dancing and a lot of episodic work. And um, I would always come home to, um, from Ohio, from Cleveland and uh, visited or would work and do uh, summer stock or, or whatever, you know, dance, dance, dance. Uh, but how I got into graduate school was I happened to call up the University of Akron had a great dance program. Another friend um, that had a wonderful dance career became a professor there. 
And so we met and she invited me to come and we had coffee and high hose and everything. And said, why don't you go and get your graduate degree? You know, and so here we go. And uh, so after a couple of years at graduate school, um, the, it's time for your thesis and your master's thesis. I'm the chairman of that wonderful school and um, said, we'd like to you to consider writing The Floor Show as part of the American Theatrical History Experiment. Mm -hmm. And since you were there, you actually know how to track it all down. That's true. So that's where it began. And it actually began 500 years ago in France with King Louis. But however, as it progressed, of course, the floor shows is well-documented from 1958 in Las Vegas when the Stardust began. That was the very first one. And um, then of course, we followed with the Follies and everything uh, that came after that. But the Lido stayed at the Stardust for 33 years and is still playing in Paris at the Lido. <sighs> they are back in, they're going back into rehearsals in the next couple of weeks for the, to get back on the stage, which makes me want to cry to know yep. that. And there's a book that Jeremy Boucher is putting together the 75 year anniversary of the Lido with photos. I go, I want that book. I want oh. your book. I want all this, this um, historical things. And I want to have a shelf of, the stuff that matters. So where does Miss Bluebell's story of, of the war, is that in that part or is that in? So in the floor shows, um, Bluebell began, of course, you know, I, everybody knows from her training and background and, you know, she was the one that put us legit on the map. Um, Bluebell was a classically trained dancer um, who extended that knowledge to all of us and to care about all of us um, in a way that the ballet companies did, but this was part of a new experience in precision dancing with large ensembles. And that's something from her background that she developed and brought out. And in 1946, which is when the Lido opened, it was the Clerico brothers. And the Lido actually means it's an, an Italian word for the bridge and the bridge meaning in World War II, imagine the Italians and the French getting together as well as imagine what that did with the Italians with the French in Paris. And this was the bridge of the cultures. So that's what the Lido did. The Lido de Paris, the bridge to Paris. And why think of the history, history. We have the Medici, Catherine de Medici. She gave birth to the three kings. One king married, of course, and that's Louis XIV, who began the floor shows in France as a cultural experience. And that's how cultures exchange with trade. And it goes from there. And so now we come to 1946 and World War II and Bluebell was the one show that was approved for the allies. Can you imagine coming mm. from America, you're 18 years old, World War II, you're in Paris, Vichy occupied, and you now have a postcard that said allied approved. And who is it? It's Miss Bluebell at the Lido de Paris open seven days a week, free to all allied soldiers. And here comes a show that celebrates not just French culture, but American culture. And that's the floor shows. And that's the pride of it. So you told, we were talking, because I just finished that book and I told you I got emotional, like how even just hearing, seeing Frederick Abcar's name in there because I only know his name from the Marquis in Vegas and I had no idea do you can you go into that a little bit of their connection yeah. of actually what was happening with the occupation because the shows were closed for a while and Miss Bluebell was interned for a little bit and trying to get those dancers like how terrifying to be stuck in Paris there's hiding dancers fighting the Nazis hiding your husband Marcel 
Um, I mean, it's it's unbelievable what they went through and what they did and stood up to them and refused to perform for them. There was only one nightclub that did, not the Lido. The Lido was so with Miss Mist and Ged or something. I heard after the end of the war, there was a lot of uh, disapproval of some of these that did perform for the Nazis. Well, when the Bluebells would not do that. Mm -hmm. No. And the bluebells and all of that did not begin until after World War II. It was 1946. So it was after that's right. the war. And that's when that began. But um, as far as Frederick Apcar, you know, he was um, working at the Follies Bergere, which is where Bluebell worked. And he um, remembered Bluebell after the war and, and during the Vichy occupation and got her a job at a real theater that was a dive called the Chantilly that's in her book mm -hmm. that's where she regroups with Frederick Apcar again who saves her feeds her hires her at this Chantilly theater and how those two came to America <laughs> him with the Ed Sullivan and um, you know the a ballet Parisienne and then again, eventually into the, the dunes and created that entire culture. But with Bluebell, they knew each other when, since they were teenagers. And to live through the war and fight through that with the resistance. So here, Frederick Apcar, the man on the billboard on the marquee, is the person that not only saved the Parisians, he was there. So tell me how patriotic dance is. Mm. These are heroes. They saved the cabarets. They saved the shows and helped them escape. We had touched on something, and now I forgot the general's name that that Hitler had told to destroy Den Paris because he was Boltitz. Yes, okay. Boltitz. That like they wanted to level it, burn the bridges, or he was bomb the, the bridges. He refused. In the end, he refused to blow up Paris to burn it. He defied Hitler and said, "I can't do it." It's interesting to be in Paris and to know the roads that we walk on. And the Isn't places that you go into that could be gone or to know the history, like going to Lido and seeing a show like, no, there's so much history of, of pain and resistance and, um, and recreation. The, and The way they are, why the shows are the way they are and the beauty behind them, not sexualized. These are French culture. It's a different expression. It's art. It's beauty, you know, women are put on pedestals, but not in a way to be glorified in that position. It's through the art of dance. It's a totally different world, you know, and this is not burlesque. This is glamor. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but we were talking about a discussion where women now would consider that that it would be um oh. not quite that wasn't selling out but that that you would be um a, not quite even object, objectified and it's really hard to to share what that was like and what the intent was in the lens of entertainment now correct so in 2017 um i met with the uh, costume uh, and fashion designers at kent state university and I, I had just come back from Las Vegas. I went to Karen Fetter's um, symposium, a conference she put together, the first one uh, for the Follies Brigere and Jerry Jackson. And they celebrated the costumes. And believe me, I was there. Karen was about out of her voice with me, but she just was so excited to be a part of this whole thing. And me too. And... Um, to see the history that was behind the costumes. And I said, I would like to try to do an exhibit back home and see if we can excite them. 
Well, the fashion designer came in from New York, it happens to be Jean Druzadow. She was the head of um, FIDEM in New York, the New York uh, Fashion Institute. And she said, I can't get an audience. The girls, people will not come to see the fashions of the showgirls from Las Vegas. And the reason why is because of what happened in Atlantic City with Frederick Apcar's show. They were considered, it was a code violation, lewd and lascivious. The criminal fashion was now criminalized. You could not do that. Because there was no topless in Atlantic City. Is that correct? Nope. Did, he, did that show end up being topless or it was just nope. what it was associated with? Nope, correct. So there was no topless shows in Atlantic City. And that was really the death knell for the floor show in Atlantic City. Um, and Las Vegas and I believe Johannesburg and everywhere else that they went, they had never had an issue. It was a French show. But here in the United States, so we created a concept to bring it forth. And then that's really what happened. I think that this generation doesn't understand the importance of the art of the floor show. It's not just nudity and, and statuesque women and precision dancing. This was a, um, a culture. This is the mm -hmm. Parisian culture. And um, with the fashions that were designed as unique spectaculars. So it can't be taken out of place. And I mm -hmm. think that that's what we're fighting with today. Yeah. Where, where not only is dance an, a, an athletic thing, it's now a sport. <laughs> Since mm. when dance is. Mm competitions so when you were doing this research you said they were behind you so you did you go to you did UNLV the archives there what was all where did you find yeah. all your information to well, really do this this thesis thank you actually um so I uh being my the chair of the department said you know Doug you are from the history of the show you are an actual dancer I see your your name in the program yep you actually knew these people mm-hmm they hired me. I was the last. And um, they said, um, if we do this, we'll back it if you do the research. So I went to the archives. I started to contact Frederick's Apcar. He had just passed away. I contacted his daughter, his son. I contacted mm -hmm. um, the old owners of the hotel. I started to dig out old photographs. I did the research. I found Bluebell's book. I found Miranda Coe. I started to find people and we've lost so many, so many from AIDS. Oh my gosh. Uh, it was just, and, and uh, ripe old ages, of course. But in that research, I, I went to the, to the archives and it was the Nevada archives, the newspaper archives, the news center that helped me the most. Hmm. Have it. So all of that history came out of there, plus what I had. And of course, knowing the very people that, that created it. Yeah. How long did that take? About a year and a half. <laughs> it wow. Was not, yeah, five drafts, year and a half, a lot of revision. Uh, photographs that were not acceptable because of a lot of the topless and nudity. Um, even work, working with a publisher, it was very difficult. Um, trying then also to get permission to, to use those photographs because I wanted to use them as archives, mm -hmm. not as a sexualized nature, but the actual history. And um, to get the compliance, it was difficult. I had to do two versions actually of the book. One has all the photos and the other one is, does not. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and for some reason, the aversion too is just not acceptable. And today dancers, of course, like us, we reserve that right. 
you know, um, to, to be broadcast out on the, the air today. You know, um, that's just something that's very personal. But because when you do are required to put on a G-string and go topless, it's not something that's um, easy to, um, uh, to do. But in the context of a professional dancer, it's so natural. I, I couldn't imagine any other way, you know? Well, looking at your face when you're telling this, you're, you can tell you're passionate about this. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what did this do to you when you start to, I mean, you already knew history, but it's kind of like when you go back and hear more of where it came from, what was it like for you to, to really tell the story and understand you were part of it? Exact. Wow. So that, that's really the basis for the, the thesis. Uh, the thesis is called The Floor Show, Origins of the Theatrical Art. And as I started to reach out to the dancers that I worked with and that I had known, the history that started to come about from Erte, from mm-hmm. Asso, from Kings, Queens, Monte Carlo, everyone in the world started to know the Lido and you and you would ask did you ever been to the of course you have and I would meet people here they've been to the Lido of course wow and it was so famous the most famous show in the world and you tried to find the history and as I started to progress and got into another program the MFA came around through National University which was old veterans college and San Diego state and through national university, of course, you know, you're dealing with world war II, JFK and that program said, you have this floor show idea. We'd like you to consider writing a screenplay about. Mm. And that's what put the whole thing in the history context together where you were able now to do the actual research of why these shows came about, the Nazis that prevented them, the change in the cultures, and uh, why they still are revered today. Wow. So the screenplay is, you said it's a fiction, but based on all this real history, but this can be written as a fiction, fictional characters, but around a very real setting. Yes, the setting is real. It is the Vichy occupation of Paris. The story is called The Displaced Person. Um, it, um, the displaced person is a phrase that was used during World War II when the immigrants came over after the war in waves and they would have to re- learn a way of life here in America. So you had the Italians and the French and everybody coming over and they were called displaced persons. So this is the story of the showgirls, the cabaret, the entertainers that not only escaped when Choltitz decided not to follow Hitler's order and allowed as Normandy, uh, the invasion of Normandy came in, the Allies took over Paris, and that was it. And they saved it. And the entertainers escaped and got on boats and went to America as displaced persons. And uh, so that, when you see, start to see then how Don Arden came over and, and brought in a show and brought back the idea to the Desert Inn and how that all progressed. And by the way, he came out of Cleveland. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) He came through Cleveland doing a show here. (laughs) But I know that he was from St. Louis originally. Mm -hmm. Don as well. And that's what was so exciting to see what he did with um, uh, Hello Hollywood, Hello. Oh my gosh. I mean, how do you top that? How do you top the veto? You know? Yeah, I think it's like understanding too of what we're part of that at its peak, that's no, I mean, there's still things being created, but it is to know like those people have passed on. And that was the thing also doing the podcast of just how many dancers we've lost. Like it feels like every week there's somebody else we've heard has just passed because we're not young anymore. 
right. the people who created this world for us, like there's, you know, it's, it's their stories are passed down and the importance of keeping these stories alive. Like if like with your screenplay, the book, the podcast is our voices, there's books being written, there's a musical in the, in the thought process, at least like, I think we're understanding this needs to be passed down while we're still here to tell the stories. Correct. I mean, these were theaters that were created just for these shows. And remember, these are French shows. These are cultural shows. Uh, these were shows that were about those cultures, French conquests, uh, French um, uh, explorations in Africa and bringing these shows to America and, um, and, the, and complete um, encapsulation with mechanical stages and um, the, the, the culture and the history of France. And uh, that, that's, that's how it began. And that's where then the Lido opened in 59, I believe, at the Stardust, stayed for 33 years. And they were the first in the United States. But it came direct from the 1946, uh, I think it was called Raison um, at the Lido de Paris. Just spectacular. So your memory of- is better and your history is better. But when Miss Bluebell, it was Follies Bergere, when, when France, Paris was occupied, that there were dancers that were caught up and, and they, that Miss Bluebell helped get them out. Like they were, she refused to comply with some of the stuff of her, her internment. She was pretty, pretty strong she, of how she did that and how they got out of there. Do you have more of the details on that? Mm-hmm. She refused to perform for the Nazis. Those girls were, her girls were not going to perform for the Nazis. She refused. And uh, they escaped. And she was just amazing. Because I know she was interned for a while. I don't know if it was like a few days or a few weeks. Because it's in the book. It's a kind of a short bit. But they, she, they do get out yes. because she's Irish citizen and not an enemy of she Germany. Was being national. An Irish yeah. national. So she was Irish national. Okay. Right. However, of course, you know, um, she was uh, uh, married to Marcel Leibowitz. And so they considered who it, her Jew, Jewess. And that's why they interned Marcel, who was, of course, the com- composer and, a, you know, the piano, uh, uh, the conductor at, with um, the Follies Brugere. And that's why Bluebell refused to perform with them because he had to escape for his life. Can you imagine? That's, that's what's so it's, interesting it's in that book. If all this, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that just shows the cruelty of all that was happening. Because I think we hear at that part of the book, um, it's so intense. And the next thing, cabarets are opening and he's back. And then right. his ex, I don't know how long he lived. I can't remember before his accident. Then she's now a widow. But it's like they go from this and horrifying time in history and now right. showbiz is back and things are happening and it's just this weird jump and I just wonder like okay these people have been severely traumatized and what it, entertainment and beauty can do for a, a culture to come back exactly Sherry you just nailed it and that's exactly it think about what they went through my god I mean there's not enough food even all- even if you're safe there's not enough food there's not it's no just it was I mean, you didn't know who was your enemy. Yeah. Some of the French sided with the Vichy, with Nazis. And One of the shows, they, tur- they tried to turn her in. Like I, that's in the book, too, of like people yeah. like making her suspect and her, her in danger. They were spies working for the French resistance. Well, in my screenplay, that's where I take the liberty of creating that, that I created a cabaret called the Follies Cabaret. It's fictional, but this is where the resistance built tunnels underneath the cabarets to get the dancers and allowed them to escape and do sabotage and espionage against the Nazis. So on that day, when the the eve of Normandy, when we were going, we were were there, Choltitz refused to blow up the city of Paris. Thank God he did, because that cabaret I wrote about, 
that all the dancers escaped from would have blown up. Yeah, that's what's like. <laughs> that was how close that could have been. And then I just finished Josephine Baker's uh, one of her biographies too, of like her being a spy, her being a spy. like. I've heard bits of those, but I think it's reading those side by side of what was happening in the entertainment world to these people that we love and adore and come from and to know the risk that they were in and that not all of them made it. There's another one called something heroin about a, uh, yes, follows, I, I think was she follows Berger that was a spy with her father and then was in the, the camps and her story is horrifying. And, the, and she was awarded several, um, I want to say medals or awards for her heroism during that time. Like, these are, these are our people been death caves before us, but it just kind of made it way more personal to me of these war stories have just been statistics before. Yes. And yet entertainers, dancers, a real profession where people really took care of each other and respected. Where are we? Where are we? Why have they gone away? Hmm. Be in a video game. This is art. And that's, that's, that's the whole point of the floor shows. This is an American theatrical experience like no other and this is the history of it and that's where it does come from yeah well I know you we talked a little bit like I'm trying to get my show together and there's like it's not going to come back with elevators and elephants and tigers and ice rinks on the stage but it can come back in a different form answers you yeah not 150 dancers okay we got a budget for three but you actually did put together some shows and so can you share about that too because you know you've danced it you've seen that side of it but then to bring it into this world without the appreciation that that we got to be a part of like you almost have to like earn the right for people to see the beauty in these shows indeed wow that's beautifully put um so yes so of course as a dancer myself I have always maintain trying to quit dancing, but I always get <laughs> to somehow I'm choreographing something somewhere. Um, but it's true. And I'll never step every time I set my toe outside of show business, forget it. It's over. So hmm. I just stay in it. <laughs> um, but the real beauty of it is um, I did. I approached the Playhouse Square Association and they had told me about a theater they unearthed built in the 1920s. It was a speakeasy. And it's literally in the floorboards underneath the Palace Theater here in Cleveland. And it's called Kennedy's Down Under. And it was a real speakeasy. So I proposed doing a cabaret show there. Um, I was teaching with the Cavalier dance team. That's the basketball girls wonderful, incredibly talented line of dancers, ballet trained, that this is the type of careers that dancers can have today, that they're sports oriented, they're cheer oriented. However, they do work every night, especially Mm. on tour. And they go out and they entertain. And um, that's, that's, that's great for precision dance lines. But they were intrigued by the costumes and they were intrigued by the choreography. I was teaching and and working with them with and they finally said you know we'd like to do that cabaret show you were talking about so I proposed it got a little backing from the uh, and support from uh, the playhouse and they said okay let's do it sold out and it was not easy but we did it in a reduced thing I had five dancers four girls one guy full costumes from Karen Burns Productions, that wonderful, fabulous person we both know and love. Mm-hmm. Love and adore. <laughs> and <clears throat> who trusted me with her heat wave costumes to nail the job. And it was so exciting. I would go back and do it in a heartbeat. It was sold out and people came up. We had a bar flowing. It was underneath just like the speakeasies in the back in the day. We did it more of a 1960s style, though, so it wasn't a real period piece like the 30s. Um, And then the second time I was able to revive it, I got a phone call from the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. And this entertainment director saw the show (laughs) and said, we have a client that would like to do a convention, a big one. For 750 people, could you do a floor show for us? 
And that's where it began. And so January 24th, I was able to bring in um, and hire local dancers, real professional MFA dancers from all around Northern Ohio that wanted to learn this, pay them well, and with a live band and a live singer on stage do four performances and then COVID hit. <laughs> oh, God. That's the where we've been sitting. I've got, I've got a costume shop waiting with costumes all ready to go. <laughs> We're waiting to get back on stage, Sherry. It's going to be us. We're going to have to do it. Yeah. I have a costume box, too, because I was getting all my costumes. I was like a third away uh -huh. in the show. I look at them and I go, OK, I'm going to visit you one day. But it just feels like the, the delay is awful, but it feels like when it's time, we got to explode onto the scene because it's like, it's kind of like after the war, people need entertainment. They need beauty. They need just something uplifting. It's just entertainment. And in the American culture, there's one thing that makes us different between the two. Europe, it's about culture, their cultural heritage, their explorations, their winning. Mm. Here in the United States, we don't do that. It's purely entertainment. And that's why the floor shows are the floor shows. We're purely about entertainment. We, we're not going out doing culture and trade with these shows. The mm. American experience is different. And we are about entertainment. And that's what these shows are meant to do. And what they've done is they've excelled. Think of what... Um, Dragon did with um, the Lido, mm -hmm. Dirk du Soleil, and building that up again and building a beautiful audience and retaining Bluebell's beautiful showgirls, of course, yeah. throughout the entire thing, never closing. And I know that the experiment has gone on because my great niece, who was a rocket, became a ribbon dancer hanging from the ceiling, spinning down in Montreal. And so she finally retired and got married. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. But I'm going to Paris in November with if hopefully with travel is OK. And I have a dancer that I'm preparing. Like we're doing a little story month by month of her preparing because I had one of the Lido dancers was coming through Seattle, did a private with her yeah. auditioning and, and how to prepare for this is different than you're not preparing for the Rockettes. You're not preparing for Broadway. You're preparing for these French cabaret shows. So we're going to go see the shows, see if we get some auditions, go eat all the food. And then I think being in Paris this time, because the first time I went, I was overwhelmed. The second time it was a reunion and we were just so, it was so fun to see the shows, take dance class on the Lido stage. And, but this time I think with, with a different appreciation about the history of Paris and the history of Miss Bluebell. And it's, I think it's going to, I want to take more time to just savor and soak it in of how far back this goes and how much this matters. It wasn't some frivolous thing we did to avoid go, going to college. Whatever. Go to Versailles. It begins at Versailles. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where it begins. That's where the Lido, the pageantry, the Pavana step. That's where it all begins at the Versailles. Mm. And then there, go to the Lido and see the Follies and Moulin Rouge and it's all there, that's French culture. And there is nothing like it. And remember the Lido was allied approved. There's an actual army postcard wow. with Madame Bluebell's picture on it. And across her chest says allied approved. <laughs> I want to find that. Oh my gosh. This it's might be the way there's, I know we could go probably four more hours with your no interview because we'll have to, because I want to we know, like I want to, but that's, I, that's so good because I want to know if people want to find your book, is it uh, accessible for people to buy or find? Oh, absolutely. So what I did, and thank you so much for asking. Um, what I did is um, uh, it's, I partnered with Amazon. And uh, Amazon was a great publisher to work with. They, they were, um, as long as it's, um, they, they don't restrict um, the sales because of the photographs in the main book. It's at Amazon. It's on Kindle. Um, mm. There is a version of it too um, that's got no photographs in it, but it's a revised um, edition 
um, especially if you're just looking for an academic uh, read. Um, it's 100 pages. Um, it's the absolute darling of my eye. It's called The Floor Show, and I will send you uh, some info. And you can get it through my website as well. And when I do my lecture series, my talks, I, I, I do a, uh, um, I just proposed actually a new course uh, uh, with my MFA now um, about Paris and the floor shows. And I bring the book along as, as well. And uh, so that becomes then uh, an academic uh, uh, structure to the course and teaching about ensembles. Wow. And then this, this screenplay, is that like in the beginning stages or is it? Actually, that was my MFA. And, that uh, was your MFA. So the screenplay can have yeah. life and come about. It's just I'm so timing. Excited. It's being read right now, I can admit and tell you guys, I am so excited. It's called The Displaced Person. It was my MFA, my master's thesis. Um, it has been submitted for approval um, and it will be available um, through, I, I guess it comes out through the UC Berkeley Press. Um, so it'll be available for scholarly purposes as well. Um, but as a screenplay, yes, it is being read um, at, this, at this time. And I'm so excited. I'm really hoping that they'll do it. Um, and, and based on the cabaret, it is not the cabaret of Germany. These are yeah. Persian cabarets, totally mm. different and of the same period. Wow. That might be a whole nother um, research and podcast of the side-by-side -side of the Berlin cabaret. Like even when you think of the, the movie and the play and the Paris cabaret side-by-side, -side, same time period, but what makes one different from the other, the victor and the, uh, yep. yeah, censorship yep. and all the other things that were going on. All of the above and what happened to Berlin and what did not happen yeah. to Paris. Yeah. They let it happen, which is just something, oh. you know, so. So we're going to well, close here, but I have a question. Okay. As you're talking about this, like you just light up, what does this do for you to get to share and know that people care about this and want to hear it? To think that I was part of this. Um, it really made me feel like part of history, mm -hmm. something that I got to be a part of and, um, there was nothing greater than to experience being a professional dancer, a respected career. Mm -hmm. um, the people that risked their lives and brought this to us, um, there's nothing greater um, than I could offer myself um, mm. and be a part of. Um, it makes me feel um, cherished, and we should. That's so good. Oh, that's so good. Because I think it's wonderful to think you are part of living it, and you're part of the preservation. Mm -hmm. So like we said, there's kind of a gap when you don't really know what you're part of when you're younger, and then you get away from it and go, oh, what? You, but I, you, you are know. part of both of those worlds, of this preservation that's happening with a lot of people, and you and you lived it. So you get to get the the both of that. The if I may, I'll just add, um, but one of my talks that I was able to do at the Cuyahoga County Library, they one of the people came up uh, from the audience and asked me, you should apply to do this at one of the major theaters. Bring the costumes in, bring the shows in, do it. Mm. Ever seen something like this? It's, it's not Disney, right? And he said, and I bet if it's done in, in the way that you, that you can deliver this as an academic, it might be presented in a way that will attract mm. um, the, the, the culture that it, it, that it commands. And remember, my God, World War II, we're losing everybody. This is, this is it. We've got to encapsulate it somehow. Yeah, very, very few that are left. 
Wow. This has been wonderful. I'm excited to see how this unfolds because, you know, like hey. I'm over here trying to start my show before COVID. Then I started the podcast and find out like, oh my gosh, this is, it's not just America. It's like every country, the bluebells live all over the whole world. And we all have stories all spread out and we all feel this need to share it and um, honor what it. And part of. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, international. Yeah. Yeah. And there will never be anything like it again. Yeah. Never. But, but we have to preserve it and keep it going and make sure it makes it into the history books and, um, and, and talk about it. I have to tell you, this was the most surprising interview I think I've done because you sent me your thing and I looked at it. I knew you had done the show. I didn't know anything about the history. And that I just finished that Bluebell book last night and it oh. was fresh in my mind. I was very emotional about it. And when you start talking about it, I'm like, this was meant to be today. It and was. the pieces that I've been wanting as, as far as the wartime and the passion that you spoke of, like this was the most surprising gift ever was to get to hear from someone who's so invested in it. And um, I just want to thank you for that. And I think everybody listening to this who may know parts of it or may have no, may have, they may have not have any idea of where this came from. And so I think it's going to make all of our stories feel even more um, cherished. So Thank you. Yeah. We're going to do something together. I know. I know it. We'll get Karen Burns on board and we'll get, all you these bet. people with these different gifts of things that are happening right now. So yeah, let's do it. If you need anything, let me know, kiddo. Uh, and likewise. Need... Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think we're Thank all supposed you. to kind of collaborate and at least lift each other up in this time. So got it. Good stuff. You take care of yourself, stay safe so that we can keep creating things. Thank you. I look all right, forward. I... And you, how do you, do you, did you speak any French? Can you say goodbye in French? Ah, uh, c'est si bon. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Joie de vie à la civile. And um, merci beaucoup. Mm. And uh, one last thing, merde. Merde. Yeah, merde. I know that one. <laughs> I've taught my kids that and they look at me like, what does that mean? Well, there's You'll two find- meanings, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh, Mered. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bluebells Forever podcast. One thing you can do to help us out is if you like this podcast is to like and subscribe and even comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and that will help us reach more people. Also, if you'd like to contribute financially, we have Patreon where there's extra bonus episodes and interviews and video for as little as $5 a month, $10, $20, and $50. And that is just to help with the ongoing work of Bluebells Forever to capture the stories of these amazing dancers over history.